A lot of you guys know this, we are new to town, and you've been gracious enough that a lot of you have invited us over, and we've got to, you know, hang with my wife and I, have been able to hang with some of you guys at your house, join some of your, your small groups, and just spend some time with you. But as you know, if, you, if you're new to a town, you don't know your way around town. And so you use your phone, and it kind of leads you where you need to go. Now, here's the problem I've had. My phone has got me there, and I have, I'm trying to get my bearings of where things are. And then I put in the address to make my way back to our place. And it takes me a different route, which is not helpful when you're trying to like, get your bearings straight on how to get places. So our maps can be helpful, but sometimes they, just, they can kind of be a little disorienting. And if you've ever gone and you, you look up, I'm going to get to a place, and you type it in, and then sometimes they'll give you like four options. And it says, do you want to take the straightest route, the one with the least turns, the one that gets you fastest? And they're all like a minute different. I always just pick the fastest one and then try to beat the time. Come on. <laughs> but there's times that I'm like, can you just tell me which way is the best? Because we have stayed across before. There's a little cabin we've stayed at over in Illinois. And the first time we crossed that blue bridge, I don't know what that bridge is. <laughs> it's Satan's bridge. And I thought, I should have chose one of those other routes to go because I don't like this bridge. But sometimes there's lots of different options to take, and the same thing sometimes happens in Scripture. And just so you guys know, you know, I do my very best to, to rightly divide Scripture for you guys. And in studying for, for sermons, I try to kind of look through and, and see what others have said, see what God is saying. And most of the time as you study, you get to some consensus that the majority of people have kind of taught, thought or, or leaned into throughout the thousands of years as people have gone and dived through Scripture. Today, we're, in a, we're starting with a verse in verse 5 that it's all over the place. The map goes all over the place. And so as somebody who's trying to teach Scripture, is like, that's like the map that leads me in so many different directions. Like, would you just give me something? And so I want to just kind of take you through. We're going to have some fun, but first I want to get a little heady and nerdy for just a minute. Um, so as I said, I, I try to rightly divide scripture. And so there's a process, you know, it's as, when you're going through ministry training at school, they take you through something called hermeneutics. And it's just a big, stupid sounding word that really just means how to study scripture well. Um, and I want to just kind of paint this picture for you. If you ever want to dive deep into scripture, there's some things that you should be asking yourself as you look into a passage. So that way, when you, if you ever want to teach it or you want to get something, my job is never to come up here and say, here's what I think this means. And to just ramble on about stuff. It's here's what I think God wants us to hear. And here's how I kind of came to this conclusion. So the things I ask when I go to the passage is first, what's the setting of the passage? You got to go to context. It's easy for us to take verses out of context and to make them say whatever we want. Um, so we look at context. What's it, where, where is it in, in the Bible? What chapter is it? What's it look like? Also, what's the historical context? What's the cultural context? So we ask that question. What's the setting? What type of passage is this? What style? You know, there's different styles. It's, the Bible is not one book. It's 66 books. It's a library and a collection of books with different styles. There's poetry. There's history. There's, um, you know, the book of Revelation is way out there. Sometimes it's, it's allegory and there's different things throughout scripture. And we have to look at those in the way that they're written and take them that way. You know, you wouldn't take, 
an Edgar Allan Poe poem and the book, The Hunger Games, and treat them the same way. Um, You're going to read them different. You're going to get some different things out of them. So what is the style of the passage? What's the meaning to the original audience? So there's this thing, whenever I teach, you know, this to other people, I say the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to the people of that time. Now, God eventually knew it was going to be written for us, but it wasn't directly written to us. So that's why we have to go, what was the meaning to the original audience? Why was this, what was this saying to them? What were the language? That's why we sometimes will say, hey, the Greek says or the Hebrew taught. And then this is sometimes where we can mess up. It's taking it and making it, how does it apply to me? How does it apply to us? And when I do that, I always make it God-focused, not self-focused. So I always want us to know, what does this show me about God? And how can this help me to know him, to love him, to, make, you know, to, to cause me to live differently? So not making it self-focused, but God-focused. So this is a simple process that when I'm studying scripture and trying to bring it to you all, I go through these questions. We sit down with a team on Monday mornings. You know, some of our staff, we sit around the table and we kind of talk through, what are we seeing in here? What is God saying? You know, they're, they're sitting there with different tools and resources and we're trying to just gather some thoughts together. And most of the time, as I study and I go through this process, again, we start seeing some consensus. And the, the 23rd Psalm is, is very metaphorical in its language. It's painting a picture in our brain. But when we get to verse 5, it kind of splits in these different directions. But the majority of people, again, be, be heady and nerdy with me for just a minute, say the 23rd Psalm is one of two metaphors. So metaphor number one is the whole 23rd Psalm is showing us the seasonal care of sheep. And the, we are always the sheep through the whole entire thing. And the entire psalm is really a seasonal progression. He starts off in the water and takes us through a valley and leads us up to a plateau, a tableland where we can dine with him. So it's this seasonal metaphor of a progression of a, of that a shepherd would care for a sheep. Other people say it's a development of faith metaphor. That we start off with a relationship that's completely dependent on obedience. So that's, he leads me, he makes me lie down. We go through a valley that... Like we said last week, it changed the language. It went from he, he to you, you. So our faith grows sometimes through a valley. And then eventually we have a develop a deep personal relationship. And this last passage we talked to where we're sitting and dining with a gracious host. And so if you look through all teachings, they all kind of boil down to these two metaphors. But then you get to verse five. And in verse five comes this verse that you're like, okay, it's talking about sitting with enemies and he prepares a table and it can be a little bit confusing. It feels like we've just switched scenes and themes all of a sudden. And these, this verse, as we were studying it and seeing all these different paths that people who have studied this for thousands of years go all over the place on what this means. And I was like, man, I don't want to just pick one and run with it. I really want to know what does God want our church to hear and so I'm reaching out to different people, and I ended up reaching out to a, a rabbi that I know. And rabbis, this is all they do. They study scripture. They study Psalms. They study things. And I said, uh, we're trying to teach this passage. Can you, what would you, how would you, what have you learned? And he writes me back. And then part of this, I just want to read what he said to me. He said, it's a song. Don't forget that. 
Although I applaud your desire to understand it in context, don't forget it's a song. Songs leave a lot up to the emotional and relational side of the brain to interpret. Ask God to speak to that side of you, that side of your soul, and let the Lord of the song sing it loud in your heart. Keep the main things of the song the main things and let the verse hit your emotional relationship with God and let him speak directly to your church in that way. I don't like that. I'm very logical. Like, I'm very much, let's make sense of something. The relational, emotional side, my wife is good with that. And I can be that way, but I'm much more like, let me know what it means. And he said, it's a song. And songs leave a lot up sometimes to just, what is it saying to you deep in your soul? And I thought, okay, I've heard enough 80s love songs that I know. It's not about the lyrics. It's like, ah, what's the feeling? You know, you guys know I'm a Taylor Swift fan. You can, you can look at that lyric or you can just let it sing to you. Now, that's a stupid, stupid way to get to this. But I just thought, okay, God, I'm just going to leave this to you. And I started just listening to it and reading it a little bit differently. And so today we're going to have some fun going through this passage. We're going to talk about what it means for God to be our gracious host. We're going to look at it from that second metaphor. The second metaphor talks about God being a gracious host. That he's no longer just this shepherd that's guiding us. He's now a gracious host that's brought us to a place where we can have a deep, intimate relationship with him. And so verse 5 begins with something. And I'm going to start with something. It begins by just saying he, he sets a table. I don't know how many of you guys like setting tables. So there was an event one time at our church. Oh, I'm going off my notes today too, so y'all better just be ready for that because usually I'm pretty good about sticking to mine. This is not happening today. Um, There's an event at our church and it was one of these fancy type of events that has like way too much silverware. And I remember my heart pounding because I was put in task of, look at my son, he's so beautiful, right? Yes. What about me? Alex is so beautiful too, yes. Like you, you're like, what about me? What about me? But I remember having to set the table. And my heart, like, like, I cannot look like an idiot up here that doesn't know which side this goes on. I'm trying to like sneakily look it up on Google, pictures of what to do. But the Lord sets a table for us. And God knows me. So he knows I don't need all the fancy stuff. Give me a plate. I don't care if it's plastic. You can be dropped on the ground. But here's what I want. Some Tostitos? Come on. And, and we're going to up the game a little bit. It's not just Oreos. It's Oreo cake. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. We got Oreo cake and Tostitos. But you read this passage, and it's, it's kind of amazing that the creator of the universe, the Lord of all, prepares a table for us. He sets a place for us, and invites us to come sit, to come rest. Here's these things that it says. It says, you prepare. So this is what it shows us. You prepare, it says, we are thought of by God. So if, if it, the scripture says you prepare, that means God has a thought of us. He's planned. He's got foresight. He's put the, when, whenever it says things about table in the Bible, it's talking about order and care. He sets the table for us. A table means we're provided for by God. You know, he gives us provision. 
We can trust that he will provide. We can be generous because he's generous to us. We don't have to fail to and say, I need to hold this all in because we have a God who wants to provide lavishly. And he puts it before me, which means that we can have fellowship with God. If I'm sitting here, God wants to sit on the other side of the table so we can just be with each other. He wants to have personal connection. He wants our attention. He loves us. All of these things we can just read and glance over or we can say, how incredible is it that God prepares a table for us? God prepares a space for us. And I think God prepares a table that looks like this, where it's like whatever it is that, that is the thing that you love, he wants to bring to you. He wants to say, here's, here's this. I've, set this, I've set this up for you. I've prepared this place for you. I want you to come and sit, enjoy time with me. One of my favorite things, I've got a, a 15-year-old daughter and she likes to, to cook. And I love after a day where you're at work and my wife, she's there with me and we come home and Kenzie's made a meal and Elijah set the table. That makes me feel loved. That makes me feel like somebody thought about us, that they prepared something for us. And that's how good our God is. He loves us. He's prepared something for us. But then it says something interesting. It says he prepares something for us, but it's in the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies, God's preparing a meal. That is not usually where you want to eat a meal. It just isn't. And you know, usually when you're eating a meal, and and if there's enemies, you talk to somebody who's been in the military, here's what they get to eat, an MRE, which is meals that are just ready to eat. A little pack that you might put water in, shake it up. It gives you some nourishment, but it doesn't taste good. It is not Oreo cake and Tostitos. It is get it in your mouth so you get a little bit of calories and keep going so you can fight the battle. But that is not what this says. It says he sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Something that we can lavish on. And here's what this means. It means the enemy's at the door. And God prepares a table. And the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. It's a Spurgeon quote, great preacher. The enemy's at the door, but we're in the presence of the victor. And so we can just sit and trust my God is good. He's a protector. He's a provider. These enemies may be in my presence, but I don't fear nothing. I'm going to dine on chips and eat some cake. Because I have a victorious king who I just need to keep my eyes on him. Enjoy time with him. And we kind of got locked in as we were talking. We got locked in as we were talking about this verse on the word enemies. And we started talking about this, this word. And someone sitting around the table goes, well, we're Christians. We're not supposed to have enemies. We don't have enemies. We say, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to have enemies. That's what we say. It says church up here on the next notes that come on, but it's not church, Churchill. Um, Churchill said this, if you don't have any enemies in your life, you've never stood up for anything. If you don't have any enemies in your life, you've never stood up for anything. We might be saying, I'm a Christian. I don't have enemies. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said this. He said that we are going to have enemies. And he said, you need to love 
your enemies. Luke 6.27 says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So here's what that means. Jesus acknowledged we're going to have enemies. Enemies are not something that we are not ever going to have, but as humans on this earth, when we think enemies, we associate it with hate, harm, hurt. That if we have an enemy, I, want to, I'm, I hate them, I want to harm them, I want to hurt them. Jesus said the opposite, love your enemies. Multiple times it talks about serving our enemies. And so today we're going to spend a little bit of time just defining and talking about what these enemies can look like. Because there's, it's an important word and we need to understand what it means. Because God's care, his care and concern doesn't eliminate the presence of enemies. It enables us to experience his goodness and his bounty even in their midst. Our enemies aren't suddenly going to go away. But even in the presence of our enemies, we can experience bounty. So I've got some friends who are going to bring out some enemies. And you guys might laugh a little bit. We're going to go through what these enemies are, who these enemies mean. So Elijah, do you want to bring out some enemies for me? Um, And maybe Alex is back there too again. I don't know. Here we go. Here's some enemies. Yeah. This is great. Yeah, this is, this is awesome. Just put it right there. That's great. I'm going to talk about some enemies today. And now we have lots and lots of different kind of enemies, but as I was preparing this and thinking about the song and letting it just speak to my soul, I kind of boiled it down to four different layers and levels of enemies. And this looks ridiculous up here, all these things, but we're going to talk about these. Here's the first enemy. We have an enemy who says prowls around like a roaring lion. This enemy is so stupid, he just put on a tiger suit. This enemy is named Satan. And this enemy has been defeated. This enemy is our spiritual enemy, and the Lord provides salvation through Christ to defeat this enemy. This enemy is not invited into the tent at all. The Lord prepares a table, which means there is a tent for us to be in with him. This enemy has been defeated. This enemy has no place in this spot with us. This enemy has has been defeated and gone. You know, I, I think I brought some up here. I did. Nails were pierced through hands. It tells us how to beat this thing up even. The Bible tells us how to beat up and defeat Satan. The Bible tells us how we don't have to put up with these things and that, you know what, it may just be a slow leak, but eventually this thing is going down because our Savior, his hands were pierced, his life was given, he was put in a tomb, and then he defeated the enemy because he rose from the grave and said, hey, you may look like you still have power, but man, it's slowly going away. One day I'm returning for good and you're going to just be crushed completely. So even though he may look like a foe to us, he's a defeated foe. He's just going to continue to sink there. Yeah, that's right. Hallelujah. This is how we should think of our spiritual enemy, Satan. He prowls around like a lion, looking like a tiger, shows us how to beat him up. And he's been defeated. And look at, we should put the enemy in a drooped down state where he's like, oh man, there's that Christian again, spending time with Jesus, dining on Tostitos while I'm trying to attack. So most of us, we give too much credit to Satan. Satan is not God. 
That means Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. And so Satan has to use some evil attacks because he's a defeated foe. But we live in a fallen world. We live in a, a, a fallen humanity. And as I was studying through this, Jay said, hey, have you ever read a book by Pastor Louis Giglio about inviting enemies to our table? And I read the book and I watched some teaching. So we're going to kind of talk about and use and steal from him a little bit today because sometimes that's what preachers need to do. But this is represented here today by this ninja. A ninja's stealth. Sometimes you don't, a good ninja, you don't see them. They, they come up and they attack. So our first enemy has been disarmed. Okay, Colossians 2.15 says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them with Jesus. So, dead, gone. Romans 16.20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan all the way under his feet and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. That enemy is defeated. But enemy number two is this. It's a fallen world. It's fleshly desires. It's the forces of evil. It's these things that sneak up on us. These whispers that start to come into our ear. This fallen world that we, we, we live in. And here's what we do. And, and Pastor Louie kind of talks about this. And he says, we're sitting here. Should be locked in and enjoying our time. In the presence of our Lord, the good shepherd. And we invite and let the, the whispers sit with us at the table. And, and this, is, this, is what, this is what we do. And here's how this looks. This is not what the enemy does. The enemy doesn't go, man, this chip, I'm going to shove it down your throat. I'm going to make you gag on it and choke on it. And no, that is not how our enemy, that is not how these things happen. That is not the whisper attacks that come at us. The whisper attacks that come at us is he sits down at the table and he just sits there. Hey, man, these are good chips. Yeah? Hey, how are you doing? How are things? How's life? Life treating you well? Your wife's still giving you a bad time? Yeah, she's kind of crazy. Her mom's real crazy. (laughs) I mean, you stuck with it for a long time. That's pretty good. I mean, I don't know how you do it. He just starts whispering these things. Planting some seeds. Your coworker, though, ma'am, she looked good the other day, huh? That dress was fire. And this is what happens. We let these, the enemy get real close and just start whispering these lies into our ears, and we don't even realize it, and we're just letting him sit there at the table with us. And, it, and all of us want somebody to just ask us, how you doing? How are things? And just to start planting these little seeds, these little seeds of doubt, these little, these little whispers that get into our brains and crawl in there and start to make us think, yeah, maybe, maybe life is better at a different table than this one that I'm at. Maybe I don't need to, to, to be with this because the enemy wants to steal everything that God gave you. And destroy everything God has provided for you. 
The enemy would love to sit here with you and eat all your chips, steal all your cake, take everything from you, make you get up and leave that table and go be outside of God's presence all the way around. But it starts with just a whisper. Hey, how you doing? How's your job? You don't make enough money. You really don't. You know, I know they, they talk about generosity and stuff. Whatever, man, you need to be generous to yourself. Just these little things that they might even sound good, but they're not biblical truths. They're not God-honoring things. And they're just these little attacks that come up. But God has given us his Holy Spirit. God has given us his scripture to fight back against these things. But here's how you know if you've let the enemy sit at your table. Pastor Louis puts it this way in, in his book. says there's these lies that if you're telling yourself these, it's better at the other table. If you're hearing these things, you might have let your enemy. It's better at the other table. If you're hearing this whisper, you're not worth it. God will never tell you that you're not worth it. He will never tell you that. So if you're feeling that I'm not worth it, that is an attack. And if you continue to hear that, you're letting this enemy get a little bit too close. You're not going to make it through this. Again, we just talked about making it through a valley of the shadow of death. Our shepherd, the good Lord, wants to lead us not into darkness, into a cave, but through hard times. So if you're, you're not going to make this through this, that is a lie. That is an attack. There's no way out. There's no way out of this. You'll never get out of this. Don't believe that. And here's a hard one. Man, nobody really cares about you. Nobody really loves you. You're out there on your own, man. They never return your phone calls. Those whispers of, when was the last time somebody actually reached out to you? These are these little whispers that the enemy wants to plant in our brains to get us to be like, yeah, you know what? I'm out of here. And he wants to distract us, deceive us, to steal everything we have. And we live in a fallen world and this enemy has been defeated and so has this one, but this one still, our enemy still has some power in this world. It's false power that Jesus has defeated and will completely defeat. But for now, we live in a fallen state. We are fallen people. And we have to say, get out of my tent. Get out of here. And we have to take captive every thought. When you feel like you're under a whisper attack from the enemy, your response should be, I need to focus more on the person that's sitting on the other side who should be the Lord. I need to spend more time focusing on how good he is, how much he loves me. Ephesians 6.10 tells us what we can do. It says, finally, be strong, not in ourself. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, not in my power. We talked about this last time. The enemy is not afraid of you, but he is dearly afraid of the Lord. And sometimes we might think, man, the enemy would never sneak up and get close to me like that. The enemy tried to attack Jesus and get close to him with whisper attacks. The enemy knows that it worked because he did it to Eve in the garden. You think he wouldn't try those same things? Now get out of here. I'm focusing in on my Lord and I'm going to put on the full armor of God. If you don't know that passage, go to Ephesians 6 this week and really, really study it. Think through it. Because it's when we put on that armor that God says, okay, we're victorious warriors, not because of us, but because I've given you 
my strength and my power. So those are two levels of enemies. But we all know those are spiritual enemies. And we sometimes have personal enemies. We got Dwight here. If y'all have ever watched The Office, Dwight is the most annoying human on earth. He's a great character in a show, but obnoxious. And here's our third enemy, our third layer, is there's people that are in opposition to us. There's people that are in opposition to us. Sometimes it's because they've deeply, deeply harmed and wounded us. They may have a, some of us have gone through times of abuse and harm and hurt, and there are people that they're, they're in opposition to us. There are other people that their viewpoints are, can be harmful to our faith, to our family. They're in opposition to us. And honestly, we hate using this word, but Scripture uses it. They're an enemy to us. But God loves everyone. So here's what we have to do. They might be invited into the tent. They don't necessarily need to sit at our table. It's the truth. There's people that they may be invited into the tent so they can hopefully just experience a little bit of Jesus. But right now, they don't need to sit at our table because maybe they've hurt us or harmed us so much that it's actually not healthy for us to be around them. Every once in a while, though, our Savior might say, hey, offer them some cake. Offer them something from your table. And they can reject it, but you're being obedient. Because I'm called to love my enemies. And different seasons, that may look different ways. Sometimes that may, may mean I need some space from you. You're still invited to be around this place, but I need some space from this. And you might be somebody's Dwight, guys. You might be somebody's Dwight. Don't shove yourself into somebody else's table unless they've invited you in. Because you might be somebody's right, honestly. We're going to talk about this next one in a minute. But there are people that they don't, they can be in the tent. They still need to have opportunity to experience the goodness of our Lord. Sometimes it's just good for them to, it's in the presence of our enemies where they can see how good our God is. And just God is prepared and he's providing. And our enemy may be over there being like, I'm missing out. I need to be part of this. That's why once in a while God might just say, hey, Offer them some of my goodness. Offer them some of my peace and my grace. They can reject it. But we do, honestly, I don't want to just tell you that we don't have enemies, that maybe they don't need a space at our table. But here's what we don't live with. We don't live with bitterness. We forgive everyone. That doesn't mean we need to be reconciled with everyone. We aren't going to carry around grudges and harm and hurt because that stuff will eat us up from the inside. And any nourishment that we have, it won't do us any good because we're living with cancerous things. You can't live with that stuff. It doesn't mean that they need to sit at your table, but you cannot live with a hate towards someone who's harmed you. And I know I've been there, been hurt and harmed by people before, and it's really difficult. But we are told to live at peace to forgive people. Romans 12, 18 says this, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then it tells us this thing that we want to do a lot of times. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. When we try to take revenge, what we're saying is, my God is not a just God. He's put the the hammer in my hand to beat someone with. 
God is a just God. He'll take and he'll, he'll do what needs to be done. Vengeance belongs to God. When we try to take revenge on our own, what we're really saying is that the cross wasn't good enough. So there are people that they are our enemies and they don't need a spot at the table. But they brought out one other thing here. This is the last layer of enemy. And there's another seat here. Because honestly, there are some enemies that we need to invite to sit with us because it's time to be reconciled. We serve a God of reconciliation. We serve a God who, who wants us to be reconciled to people. And there are some people in your life where you need to invite them and you need to sit. And both of you, not sitting just together, but sitting together in the presence of God. And it's time to be reconciled with that person. There are those people that it's, it's, it's no longer just you're an enemy. It's, hey, you're an enemy that I've invited here. Let's just work some things out. Here's the basic model for reconciliation that I teach all the time. Because there's people that harm us, hurt us, and we've got to do some things if we're going to be reconciled. The first thing is we go upward. We go to God. God, who do you want me to be reconciled with? How do you want me to approach this? God, what do you want this to look like? We go to God first. And usually we go to God and then we go to the person. No, then we go to ourselves. God, what part did I have in this? Even if it's the smallest part, in any conflict, we all have some kind of a part to play. God, what part did I have in this? I'm going to go inward. I'm going to ask, you know, God, where did I mess up? What's going on in my life? And then we go to the person. Because we've went to the Father. We've tried our best to ask for forgiveness and mercy and grace on our own. And then I'm going to go to try to be reconciled with my brother. To invite them to the, to the table with me. To enjoy some of God's goodness and his peace. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you gain a brother. Our job and our goal should really be with as many people as possible. That they don't, we don't need the bunch of Dwights out there. There are people, like I said, that they need to stay, keep their distance. But we want to try to reconcile people back to relationship with us and really to Jesus. Because they're not just sitting at my table. They're sitting at the table with the Lord. So those are kind of our four layers. There's lots more different things and intricacies and, and enemies, but we've got Satan. We've got whispers that want to really screw us up. We've got people who have harmed us and hurt us. And we have people that we need to be reconciled with. And then the, the passage ends with just a couple things. The first one is, it says, you anoint my head with oil. This isn't an anointing that they would do for kings. It's actually the word talks about refreshment. You know, back in, in the time that this was written, it's hot, it's sunny, it's windy. And when they'd come in, a good host would just refresh their face, brighten their countenance, show them I prepared something for you. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to anoint us with oil, with his, his Holy Spirit, so that we have a better countenance, a stronger joy. We should shine and look different because the Spirit of God rests upon us. We should have a different countenance because God dwells within us. He anoints us to look different, to shine different, to be different in this world. And then the last thing it says is this. It talks about a cup that's overflowing. And this talks about just God's 
graciousness because sometimes we feel like God just is this way to us. Okay, you've got enough. Man, there's verse after verse after verse. To have cups running over means that we're so blessed. We're so blessed. I'm going to make a mess, and I hope I don't get it on myself, but I don't care. We're so blessed that it just spills out. We're like, I don't like spilling out. We're spilling out so that other people can experience all the blessing, and we can know I have more than enough. I don't even need, I don't need to, to be worried. I don't need to be anxious, because every time this thing just lives a little bit, God will pour some more in it. We have a God of abundance. Is God's goodness and abundance pouring out of you or is something else pouring out? Are you thinking so much of yourself that your container is so big that even though God wants to pour a lot in, you're like, man, because you think so much of, I need this much. And God's like, nah, you really need this. Let me pour out my blessings and show you that. We have a good God who doesn't just do enough. He wants more than enough. And then it says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. You know, if you've ever been in a fight, it's really good to have a, a, someone on your back that's big, strong, saying, they got my back. Here's what has our back. Goodness and mercy follows us. And not just any goodness and mercy, the goodness and mercy of God has our back. And it follows us forever. We can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And here's an important statement. Forever doesn't have to be a future word. Forever doesn't mean we just look forward to a future hope in heaven. Forever starts today. Forever is a present word. It says we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know where the house of the Lord is? It's not just heaven. It's here right now. Psalm 22 through 24 are actually a collection of psalms. In Psalm 24, the first verse coming out of this says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So you can dwell in God's presence and in the house of the Lord, taste his goodness, experience his overflowing blessings today. Forever can start right now. So this has been a a great song, but it began with the Lord and it ends with the Lord. It began by saying, here's who the Lord is. And then at the end, it says, you can live with him and dwell with him in his house and dine with him forever. But the key thing is the same thing we started with. He has to be your Lord. He has to be your Lord. He can't lead you beside waters and make you lie down and take you through valleys and prepare Tostitos and cake for you if he's not your Lord. Defeating your enemies, won't happen if he's not your Lord. Satan has been defeated forever and we just have to accept that forgiveness. We have to accept that our enemy has been defeated. So today, let's just thank God for this psalm, but let's pray and say, God, all these things, I want to experience all of this, your rest, your peace, your provision, your abundance, because you are my Lord. God, we thank you.